altar is a place to activate divine intervention you're in need of divine intervention you should know your altar and from your altar activate a divine intervention altars are for a memorial of the faithfulness of god in other words people built altars to commemorate the events of god's faithfulness in their life the altar is found in the temple and we are the temple of the lord it is actually an act of worship sacrifice unto god for you to be a faithful employee at work no matter where we find ourselves god wants to use you and so you must be conscious of the fact that you are his temple the word of god is a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path be blessed today as god's servant reverend peter ayo alabi brings you god's word praise the lord Glory to Jesus. Whilst you are still standing, carry your Bible in your hand. First Peter two, chapter two. First Peter chapter two, and we're going to read the fifth verse. First Peter chapter two, and verse five. Glory to God. When you find it, say, "I have it." All right, then let's read together. Once you go, everybody. You also, as lively stones, are built up in a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Let's read it one more time. Wait, wait, wait. He also has what? Uh-huh. As what? Look at him and say, I also, as a living stone. It's not lively stones, it's living stones. Praise the Lord. Glory to Jesus. Hallelujah. It's the last Sunday of the month. Praise the Lord. <laughs> and that brings the year halfway. Can you imagine? I mean, six months is gone. And um, we're about to enter the second half. How many of you know sometimes, even if you're losing in the first half, you can still win the game in the second half? Glory to God. Hallelujah. All right, be seated. Praise the Lord. And so, anyway, just to be sure you are not told the wrong thing. Because you don't know who is who. Now, go back in your Bible first, Peter 2. If you read the previous verse, verse 4, to whom coming as unto a living stone is allowed indeed of men, but chosen of God. And the living stone he's talking about is who? Is the Lord Jesus Christ. He refers to Jesus Christ as a living stone. And notice here, the word he used in the original language, the Greek language is zao, in the Greek, which means something which is alive or to live or to have life. Now, he refers to Jesus as a living stone. In verse 5, he says, ye also. So notice already, when he starts by saying ye also, he's already saying, you know, the same way, just like the Lord Jesus, as lively. And that's where, you know, uh, we, we changed and said, no, he's living, not lively. reason is simply because it's the same Greek word. Just the same Greek word he used in the previous verse for Jesus is the same Greek word he's using here for us. Now, the translators were scared. Did you see that? Just as many Christians are scared today to call themselves what God calls them because it is the same thing as he calls himself. Do you understand that? So, it was out of 
unnecessary respect. The kind that God does not want. Did you see that the translator said, no, we can't say we are living stones like Jesus. So let's call our own lively. But it's not lively. It's living stone. Did you get it? Same, same. Same, same, no shame. Glory. <laughs> Did you see that? Just like him. I am alive like Jesus is alive. You know, Jesus said, because I live, you will live also. Are you getting this? And so he says, we're built up a spiritual house. In other words, the bricks with which God has built his spiritual house are his men. That's why we are his temple. Do you remember that? We are the house in which God lives. And um, we're going to see some of these things this morning as we wrap up this teaching series this month. And if you've been following all through the month of June, we've been talking about spiritual sacrifices in the New Testament. And this morning, I want to talk about the fact that we have an altar. And that's the title of my teaching this morning. We have an altar. Because sacrifices are offered on altars. So we have an altar just like they did in the Old Testament. We also have an altar. We also have an altar. In the Old Testament, we saw how Father Abraham, since the beginning of this teaching series, you notice we talked about how Father Abraham took his son Isaac and placed him upon an altar. Did you see? To offer him. And in the same way, we also, in the New Testament, we also have an altar. And the altar we have, the Word of God describes it as one that those in the Old Testament could not have approached. Anyway, because they didn't have it. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews 13 and verse 10. Hebrews 13 and verse 10. And the Word of God says, we have an altar whereof they have no rights to eat, which serve the tabernacle. So, it's very clear that we do have an altar. Look at somebody tell them, say, we have an altar. altar. Say it again. Say, we have an altar. In Exodus 30 and verse 1, and this morning we're going to have to travel very fast because we have a lot of things to cover. And so, in Exodus chapter 30 and verse 1, it says, And thou shalt make an altar to burn incense upon, of shitting wood shalt thou make it. So, notice they made their own altars, did you see, from earthly things, from natural things. In chapter 31 of the same book of Exodus, we're going to read verse 6 to 8. And I, behold, I have given with Aholiab, the son of Ahishamak. I know some of his names sound like tongues to many of you. Um, so that's why you've got to understand you must read the Old Testament too. All right. Some believers uh, today are very funny. They say, we are new creation people. We don't need the Old Testament. That is a very shallow statement and a shallow way to think. There is no new without the old. All right? The, the New Testament is simply the explanation of the Old Testament. And so you can't do away with it. So, for example, as I'm teaching you about our altar today, it is impossible to teach on this without going to the Old Testament. Now, the Old Testament foreshadows the new. Did you see? In the Old Testament, in other words, you have shadows of the new, you have promises of the new, and you have prophecies of the new. I'll say that again. The Old Testament contains shadows of the New Testament, promises of the New Testament, and prophecies of the New Testament. The Old Testament contains shadows of the New Testament, promises of the New Testament, 
and prophecies of the New Testament. And what that suggests, of course, is the fact that the New Testament is the substance for which the old is the shadow. And then it means the New Testament is the fulfillment of the promises in the old. And the New Testament is the accomplishment of the prophecies of the old. So if you're going to be in the New Testament, you must know what was foreshadowed in the old, what was promised in the old, and what was prophesied in the old. So in Exodus 31, and that's why you've got to pay attention, and I want you to really read these verses so you open your Bibles. Glory to God. So we are in Exodus 31. I know some of you have not opened it this year, but we are there. From verse 6 to 8, And I, behold, I have given with him Aholiab, the son of Aishamak, of the tribe of Dan. And in the hearts of all that are wise-hearted, I have put wisdom, that they may make all that I have commanded thee, the tabernacle of the congregation, and the ark of the testimony, and the mercy seat that is thereupon, and all the furniture of the tabernacle, verse 8, and the table and his furniture, and the pure, pure candlestick with all his furniture and the altar of incense. It's called the altar of incense because they offer incense on it. In Exodus 35 and verse 15, and the incense altar, again you see, and his staves, and the anointing oil, and the sweet incense, and the hanging for the door of the entering in of the tabernacle. So notice there, he mentions the altar of incense. Let's look at what this incense is. There is the incense of worship in Psalm 43 verse 4. Then will I go unto the altar of God, unto God my exceeding joy. Yea, upon the harp will I praise thee, O God my God. So this is the Psalm of David saying that upon the altar I will offer unto you, did you see, uh, praises and exceeding joy. You're going to see this, put it in your heart because we're going to see it in the New Testament as one of the things that we do today. Psalm 118 verse 27 to 28. God is the Lord which hath shewed us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords. Even unto the horns of the altar, thou art my God, and I will praise thee. Thou art my God, I will exalt thee. Can you see that? And he's going to do all of these at the altar. Revelations 11.1. 1. Revelations 11.1. 1, he says, and there was given me a reed like unto a rod. And the angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar. And them that worship therein. Did you see that? He says, the altar and them that worship therein. So we notice some of the incense that is offered, did you see, is the incense of worship, the incense of praise. Did you see? The altar is also a place of prayer, where the incense of prayer is offered unto the Lord. In Genesis 12, 8, we see Abraham doing this. And he removed from thence unto a mountain on the east of Bethel, and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he builded an altar unto the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. In Genesis 13, Abraham did the same. Unto the place of the altar, which he had made there at the first. And there Abraham called on the name of the Lord. We see Isaac doing the same thing. In Genesis 26, 25, and he builded an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord. And pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants digged a well. In First Kings 8 and verse 54, First Kings 8 and verse 54, 
And it was so that when Solomon had made an end of praying all this prayer and supplication unto the Lord, he arose from before the altar of the Lord. So he prayed at the altar from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread up to heaven. You know, uh, you learn, I think I taught this about two, three years ago in one of our teaching series on prayer, the postures in prayer. And you see one of such that Solomon did here. He said, the Bible says, from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread up to heaven. One of the postures of prayer is to kneel before the Lord. You see Apostle Paul doing the same thing in Ephesians 3, 14. For this cause I bow my knees. Did you see that? And you see Solomon also lifting up his hands. That's another posture of prayer. He bowed his knees, lifted his hands. First Timothy 2, 8, Paul again, speaking to Timothy, says, I will that men will lift up holy hands everywhere, did you see, to pray without doubt or wrath. Can you see this? So, when you want to pray, those are postures of prayer. Kneeling down, raising your hands, and of course, standing also. In Mark eleven twenty five, the Lord Jesus said, and when ye stand praying, and when ye stand praying, so you can stand to pray. It's good to stand to pray. And he said, if you have ought against any, did you see, he said, forgive. Some don't want to forgive, say they don't want to stand up to pray. Because he said, when you stand praying, forgive. So he, perhaps it would mean if you can kneel down and pray without forgiving. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Tell him, that's not so. Mm -hmm. All right then. The altar is also a place where gifts and sacrifices are offered. The altar is also a place where gifts and sacrifices are offered. But before we go to that, I'll give you one more reference about the altar being a place where the incense of prayer is offered. Revelations 8 and verse 3. Revelations 8 verse 3, we want to see how the altar is a place where the incense of prayer is offered. And another angel came and stood at the altar having a golden censer. And there was given unto him much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. So our prayer, did you see, is like incense unto the Lord. The psalmist said it. He said, let my prayer arise unto thee like the evening sacrifice. Did you see that? As the evening sacrifice, let my prayer did you see? And the lifting of my, of my hands. Again, you see that poster of lifting your hands in prayer. Glory to Jesus. And we see, like I said earlier, the altar is also a place where gifts and sacrifices are offered. It's a place where gifts and That should be Psalm 141. The altar is a place where gifts and sacrifices are offered. Let's go on. Deuteronomy 33 verse 10. He said, they shall teach Jacob the judgments. Did you see? And Israel thy law. They shall teach Jacob thy judgments and Israel thy law. They shall put incense before thee and hold bond sacrifice upon thine altar. That is, those are gifts and sacrifices that they offer on the altar. Isaiah 56, 7. Isaiah 56, 7. Even them will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their bond offerings... And their sacrifices shall be accepted upon my altar. For mine house shall be called an house of prayer for all people. Notice that. Of course, he's talking about the buildings as the house of prayer. And that still applies today. The place where we meet as believers, one of the reasons why we gather is to pray. Is to pray. Acts 4.23, being let go, they went to their own company. And they didn't just go to Jesus. They went to pray. Now, so there are places of worship. There should be places of prayer. But more importantly, the man in Christ is God's house. 
Hebrews 3, 6. Whose house are we? He said, but Christ Jesus as his son over his own house. Whose house are we? And so you understand there, if we are his house, and he says his house must be a house of prayer, then we must be people of prayer. <laughs> say after me, say, I'm a house of prayer. <laughs> if I say this, we say, I am God's house of prayer. <laughs> Come on, say it like your voice is here. Say, I am God's house of prayer. It's very important. And so we continue in Matthew 5, verse 23 to 24. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, notice that. So we're looking at the fact that the altar is a place where gifts and sacrifices are offered. Jesus speaking said, therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar. So gifts are offered at the altar. And there remember that thy brother at ought against thee leave there thy gift before the altar again do you see that and go thy way first be reconciled to thy brother and then come and offer thy gift did you see that so we see the altar is a place where gifts are offered where sacrifices and gifts are offered matthew 23 and verse 18 to 21 and was and whosoever shall swear by the altar it is nothing but whosoever swear by the gift that is upon it, Jesus is rebuking and reprimanding the Pharisees because of their hypocrisy. So he's saying to them, you guys say that whosoever shall swear by the altar, it is nothing. No big deal in other words. He said, but whosoever swear by the gift that is upon it, he is guilty. So in other words, he's, he's chiding them because of their hypocrisy. He says, ye fools and blind, for whether it's greater, the gift or the altar, that sanctifieth the gift. So notice there again, Jesus is emphasizing the altar as a place where gifts and sacrifices are offered to the extent that he says the altar sanctifies the gift that is brought upon it. Did you see that now? And again, I read, he said, ye fools and blind, for whether it's greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift. Whoso therefore shall swear by the altar, swear by it and by all things thereon. And what are the things thereon? The gifts that are upon the altar. And whoso shall swear by the temple, swear by it and by him that dwelleth therein. Can you see this? Abraham offered Isaac on an altar. Genesis 22, 9. And they came to the place which God had told him of. And Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order. And bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. So Isaac was the gift that was to be offered in this instance. And notice what did Abraham do? He placed the gift, that is Isaac, upon the altar. So the altar is a place where gifts and sacrifices are offered. Say I hear one more time somebody. In James 2.21, we see James alluding to that fact of what Abraham did. He said, was not Abraham our father justified by works? He says, when he had offered Isaac his son, where? Upon the altar. Not on, not on Instagram, on the altar. Did you see that? On the altar. On the altar. Now, altars are for a memorial of the faithfulness of God. Altars are for a memorial of the faithfulness of God. In other words, people built altars to commemorate the events of God's faithfulness in their lives. Genesis 22, sorry, Genesis 33 and verse 20. Genesis 33 and verse 20. Jacob, you see Jacob built an altar after his meeting with Esau. And he erected there an altar and called it El Elohi, Israel. By the way, El Elohi, Israel means the mighty God of Israel. In other words, the mighty God who saved me. 
Can you see? So, this is why people named altars. And it's important to know because sometimes people are trying to worship God and they say, your name is El Elohi. No, it's not his name. It was a name given to a place. We just read it now. He erected an altar and called the altar, not God. He named the altar by that. God's name is not El Elohi. Do you understand that? It's very important to know that. This is also, also, what's God's name? God's name is revealed in his son. Father. That's what God wants us to call him. When you meet people, you ask them, what do you want me to call you? You know, it's rude for you to meet a person and say, what's your name? He say, my name is Shola. Shole. That's rude. He just told you his name is Shola, not Shole. So what's your name? Say, Roke, Aronki Shaya. <laughs> Rude boy. Rude man. I don't know why you guys think of other people when I'm talking here. Okay, Rude boy is the name of an artist, isn't it? Uh, Pastor Larry doesn't know. He's too born again. He's too saved to know. I don't think I know either, do I? <laughs> Is what I'm saying. So you don't you don't call a person by a name that they didn't permit you to call them. So it's important to understand that. Now there's nothing wrong to mention El Elohi, but don't mention it as though that is God's name. You see, because man cannot name God. No, God reveals Himself that this is who I am. You can't name God. I'm, I'm, I'm amazed on that when people say stuff like I call Him. No, you can't call him what you want. Be sure that if you are calling him by what you made, by what you made up, your creativity, is not God you are talking to. It's okay to name, like Jacob did, certain events of your life to, to, to make a memorial of what God did for you in that situation, such as they did and they called Ebenezer. Do you know Ebenezer is not God's name? He's a stone. So what they did was they took a stone and it was for a memorial just to remind themselves that this is the faithfulness of God in our lives. And Ebenezer actually means thus far as the Lord helped us. Actually Ebenezer means the stone of help. And it's not a stone they go to bow to. No. It's a stone to remind themselves that God helped us and we don't want to forget it. And they will carry it along. Do you see, as they journeyed, so that when their children ask them, what minute this stone, they will tell them the story. When so and so happened, God showed up for us and God helped us. He's my helper. Do you understand it now? And, and it's good for a believer to be able to do that. For you to get to places and say, ah, God helped me. He's the God of my journey. Are you getting it now? Yeah. And so these are the things they did in the Old Testament. And you see Jacob here building an altar and he called it, that is the altar, El Elohi, Israel. Today we don't need to carry stones all around. You can take pictures to remind yourself of things God has done. Somebody hear what I'm saying? That's like I can imagine the person who has been through a serious health crisis and the, the last day you go for the treatment like this, you take a picture and say, ah, 
this picture is to remind me that he is my healer. Remember, a woman of God did a video. She played it. She ministered at the conference. I was privileged to minister right after her. And she played a video of how she was studying a few years ago. And while she was studying, you know, she fell and a part of her face became paralyzed. Immediately, she had that accident. You know what she did? She recorded the video. It was difficult for her to speak. But she still went on to record the video and said, this is my face right now that this thing happened. And I'm saying this to let you know because by his stripes, I am healed. And I know, and she said, the next video you will see is me completely healed. Well, the video, we didn't need to look at the video. She was right in front of us. The faithfulness of God. Now, she's carrying that video everywhere she goes to preach. It's just exactly like these stones. Is somebody getting what I'm talking about now? So, you see, Jacob did that for a memorial. In Genesis 35, verse 3, And let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make there an altar unto God, who answered me, did you see this, in the day of my distress, and was with me in the way which I went. Now, in this case, he didn't really put a name on this one, but he already tells us what that altar was to remind him of. And let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make there an altar unto God, who answered me in the day of my distress, and was with me in the day in the way which I went. In verse 7, and he built there an altar, okay, he called it the name, and called the place what? El Bethel. Because there God appeared unto him when he fled from the face of his brother. So you see another altar given a name, El Bethel. Now in this case, the name of the place is already Bethel, but he now puts El. El actually usually means God. Did you see that? El Bethel, where God appeared unto me. In Judges chapter 6, in Judges chapter 6, and before we look at Judges 6, you'll notice the same thing happened on Mount Moriah in Genesis. And after Abraham had been commanded by the angel of the Lord to not kill his son, and the angel said, look behind you, there's a ram caught in a thicket. And so he said, you take that ram and sacrifice that ram in the place of your son. Abraham lifted his voice and called the place Yahweh Yireh. Now, what you will, it's English, English size, and we say Jaira, or as you blacks call it, Jaira. As your neighbor say, are you part of the blacks? I am, proudly so. <laughs> you see that now but in the real pronunciation in the hebrew is yahweh Yireh. look at that and abraham called who now the name of that place did you see that he didn't say the name of god the name of that place jehovah Jireh. did you see as it is said to this day in the mount so he's telling you what it means in the mount of the lord it shall be seen the place did you see that and it's a good thing to sing that song. Jehovah Jireh, my provider, his grace is sufficient for me. My God shall supply all my needs according to his riches and glory. 
He will give his angels charge over me. Jehovah Jireh cares for me, for me, for me. Jehovah Jireh cares for Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Jireh. My provider is grace, he's a peace. Ah, you think I was not going to I'm, I want to see from the beginning to the end. Jehovah Jireh. <laughs> His grace is sufficient for Hey, my God, my God shall supply all my needs. Hey, according to His riches and glory, He will give His angels charge over. Hey, Jehovah Jireh cares for me, for me, for me. Jehovah Jireh cares for me. Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Jireh. Shall supply all my need. I call it his pipe. Is it good? Does he know anything? He will give me just how you want to
Somebody say, my needs are met. Say like you mean to say, my needs are met. Say, all my needs are met. Say, over and above. More than I can imagine. More than I can ask. God supplies. Shout amen, somebody. Woo, glory. Glory, glory. <laughs> glory to God. Let me tell you, anytime you sing that kind of song, you are turning the place you are at into the place of supply. Come on now. <laughs> if it ever looks as though you are about to be stranded, that's a song to sing. That's a song to sing. Because you are simply declaring on this place, on this mountain, it shall be seen what the Lord has done. How many people are ready to see what God has done in this place? You will see it today. Oh, I say you are going to see it today in the name of Jesus. Whatever that thing is, thank God for it now. Thank God for it now. Thank God for it now. Oh, thank God for it now. Whatever that thing is, give him thanks now. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Glory, hallelujah. We thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. In Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. Glory to God. Hallelujah. You know, it's good to always come into understanding of a word. So there are certain things we sing or say, but as we get understanding, it brings us into a different experience of it. So next time you sing songs that have that word in it, you understand what you're doing. You're making a declaration. Actually, you notice Abraham said, he said, upon this mountain, it shall be seen. So you notice, therefore, he couldn't have been talking about the ram because he had seen that one already. He's talking about Jesus Christ. And that's a prophetic word that on this, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be seen. In the mount of the Lord, it shall be seen. And he was referring to the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in other words, he was simply saying, that's the same way I came here without knowing how this ram got here. It's the same way God will bring his own son as a lamb for the sins of the whole world and no man will have any hand in it. There are certain miracles that man has no hand in it. But you are going to see it. <laughs> we are going to see it. In the name of Jesus Christ. You know, people should not be able to always explain your progression in life. If all your progress is explainable by man, the hand of God is not there. Because when the hand of God is in something, you can't explain everything. Begin to experience such miracles. It is, it is called the supernatural. Let that be your experience from now. In the name of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Alright, be seated. Thank you, Lord. In Exodus 17, 
Exodus 17, verse 15 to 16, we see Moses. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it. Did you see it again? He called the name of it the altar, Jehovah Nisi. Nisi means my banner. My banner. For he said, because the Lord had sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Banner actually is a military thing. When they go to a place, they hoist what we call a flag today. Did you see that? And so he says, the Lord, my banner, he called the name of it, the altar. Did you see? So we see Gideon also building an altar in Judges 6, 24. Then Gideon built an altar there unto the Lord and called it, do you see it again? Called it Jehovah Shalom. Now, of course, you should know that. Shalom means what? The Lord our peace. Did you see that? In other words, he built this altar to commemorate how God gave peace. Did you see that now? He called it Jehovah Shalom. Unto this day, it is yet in Ophrah of the ABS rites. Did you see that? So, understand this, that people built altars to commemorate or as a memorial of the Lord's faithfulness. And that's why you will never see an altar to remind you of God's unfaithfulness because God will never be unfaithful. He will never be unfaithful. So, the altar is also a place of supernatural manifestations. And one of the most common of such manifestations are angelic manifestations. In Judges 13, the parents of Samson, Manoah, the Bible says, so Manoah took a kid with a meat offering and offered it upon a rock unto the Lord. And the angel did wondrously. And Manoah and his wife looked on. For it came to pass when the flame went up toward heaven from off the altar. Did you see that? That the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar, and Manoah and his wife looked on it and fell on their faces to the ground. So at that altar, they experienced or had an encounter that was supernatural, and it was angelic in uh, nature. That is, they saw an angel, and the angel did, the Bible tells us, uh, did you see wondrous things? In Luke 1 11, and they appeared unto him, this is Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, and they appeared unto him, an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. There appeared unto him an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar of incense. So you see a supernatural manifestation. An angel showed up there. Revelations 8.3. And another angel came and stood at the altar. We read this earlier on. Having a golden censer. So we see angels again present at the altar. And there was given unto him much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. Now, notice in all these three instances of angelic manifestations at the altar that there was prayer going on. When there's prayer going on, there will be heavier angelic activity. When there's prayer going on, there will be heavier angelic activity. The word of God tells us in Hebrews 1.14, angels are sent forth to be ministers for those who should be heirs of salvation. In other words, those of us who are in Christ, angels are our messengers. That is, they run errands for us. Psalm 102 verse, uh, 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 Psalm 103, I beg your pardon, and verse 20, the Bible says that the angels of the Lord, they excel in strength. Did you see? And the Bible says they hearken to the voice of God's word. When we pray as believers, did you see? The word of God we pray. Did you see? Angels hearken to it. To hearken means they heed those words and act upon it. They carry out those instructions. And you will see, therefore, because prayer is offered at the altar, therefore angels must be present there. 
Again, altars are built for divine intervention. Altars are built for divine intervention. Second Samuel 24. Second Samuel 24. And we're going to read from verse 18 to 25. Second Samuel 24. And I'd like you to open your Bible because we're going to read it together. Second Samuel 24. We're going to read from verse 18 to verse 25. When you have it, say I have it. And I'm coming to you now. Glory to God. Second Samuel chapter 24 from verse 18 to verse 25. Want to read everybody and God, God, come on now. Now, we're, we're not talking God. I just know if that's the way you try to sound as if you are an American. Not even being to Ghana yet. You say God. Now, this is real God. A person, not our God. So tell them, say, this is a person, not our God. <laughs> tell them, say, I mean, I mean God. Look at it on the screen. God. All right, so let's read now, everybody. And God came that day to David and said unto him, Go up, rear an altar unto the Lord in the threshing floor of Arahuna, the Jebusite. And David, according to the saying of God, went up as the Lord commanded, and Arauna looked and saw the king and his servants coming toward him. And Arauna went out and bowed himself before the king on his face upon the ground. And Arauna said, Wherefore is my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor of thee, to build an altar unto the Lord, that the plague may be stayed from the people. And Arauna said unto David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seemed good unto him. Behold, here be oxen from, for burnt sacrifice and threshing instruments and other instruments of the oxen for food for wood. All these things, we'll read the 25. As a king, give. And our owner said unto, go on. Yeah. Yeah. Unto the Lord, my God, of that which doth cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for fifty shekels of silver. And David built there an altar unto the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord was entreated for the land and the plague was stayed from. So there was a plague. This was after David had counted the people. Did you see? And so there was a plague. Notice the altar was built for divine intervention. I want to call your attention to verse 21. And Arauna said, Wherefore is my Lord and King, the King rather, come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor of thee, to build an altar unto the Lord, that the plague may be stayed from the people. He stated it clearly. The purpose of this altar I've come to build is so that the plague will be stayed. That is to stop the plague. That is to seek divine intervention. So the altar is a place to activate divine intervention. And that's exactly what he got. Because we read in verse 25, And David built there an altar unto the Lord and offered bond offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord was entreated for the land and the plague was stayed from Israel. Did you see that? He built the altar 
for divine intervention and he got the divine intervention. And I'd like you to take note of all these things because though these events happen in the Old Testament, they are instructive of what happens in the New. See, Christians sometimes go through tough situations in life and they do everything else except what the Bible teaches. You're in need of divine intervention. You should know your altar and from your altar activate a divine intervention. And you see, as I'm showing you, remember what I told you when we started this morning. The Old Testament, did you see, foreshadows the new, contains the promises did you see for the new or of the new and the prophecies of the new to the glory of God all three are now realities for us did you see this and that's why Jesus said don't think I have come to abolish the law I came to fulfill it so in other words it doesn't mean that those things don't exist anymore they exist in their reality in the real form so what was Goats, bulls, rams to them in the Old Testament is Jesus to us. What was an altar made of wood and stones to them today is here in my heart. Oh, come on, somebody hear what I'm saying. And so to understand the reality is good to actually study the shadow. That is the bane of a New Testament ministry. All the apostles in all their writings, all they were doing was to explain the Old Testament. They quoted copiously from the Old Testament. The first message ever preached in the church of Jesus Christ on the day of Pentecost by Apostle Peter, Acts 2, he quoted from David copiously. Psalm 16. Did you see that? Paul's first apostolic, recorded apostolic message, Acts 13, quoted copiously from the book of Psalms, the words of David. You see them quoting from Isaiah the prophet, Jeremiah the prophet. Why are they doing that? Because those men foretold of these days. Our Lord Jesus did the same. Put one hand. I've not asked you to use your hand this morning. So put one hand there, all right, in 2 Samuel and go with me quickly to Luke 24. Luke 24. And we're going to begin reading from verse 25. Then he said, that's Jesus said, unto them, the them here is the two disciples on their way to Emmaus, and one of them had the name Cleopas. We are not told of the name of the other one. And so the Bible tells us what Jesus did. Because now he's rebuking them. If you were in service on Wednesday, I told you, correction is different from fault finding. And a correction in the New Testament is the fact that the Holy Ghost will point at your wrongdoing and then he will now tell you the right way to do things. He's not going to shy from telling you the wrong thing you did. He's going to mention it. And that's what we see here Jesus is doing. So notice Jesus says, he didn't look at them and say, hey, you are the righteousness of God. You know, and shy away from what they did. No, that's not the way God corrects. Anyone who teaches that kind of thing probably doesn't yet understand the Bible well and has to do some more study. So if you're not in church on Wednesday, go and get the message and listen. How God corrects us. Are you hearing what I'm saying right now? 
correction and adjustment. God corrects. Tap your neighbor and say, God corrects. If I just hold your shoulder, I say, God corrects. God corrects. Uh-huh. I say, correction is good. It's good. It's good. Say like me, say, it's really, really good. And it's good because God doesn't correct to destroy. He corrects to build, to build up, to restore. However, even though correction is to build and restore, correction is not always comfortable. If I is never comfortable. Do you see what I'm saying? So don't expect God to smile at you when he's correcting you. And we're going to see an example here. The Lord Jesus says to them in verse 25, then he said unto them, Oh fools, how about that for good morning? Oh fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wow. He's addressing the issue. He says the reason why you're talking the way you're talking because they were saying to Jesus Christ, we thought he will be, he will be, he will be alive now. You know, three days now he's been dead and all our hope is gone. And so Jesus is saying, for you to talk like this, the reason is because you did not believe and you have not believed all the prophets had spoken. He doesn't shy away from that. He addresses it. He says, this is unbelief. So the Holy Ghost will call out what you did. This is unbelief. You know the good news about the Holy Ghost? He's not going to call it out to others. He will call it out to you. He doesn't gossip. He doesn't call somebody and say, see your neighbor. See his life. Eh? Fool. Slow of heart to believe. That's who he is. Notice, Jesus didn't say this to other people. He said it to them. God directs his correction to the person who is in question. The one who needs it is the one he will give it to. Now, he may send it through somebody to you. And that's why if you are the one God is using to correct somebody, go direct. Come on now, is somebody hearing what I'm saying now? So, he looks them in the eye and says, Oh, fools and slow of how to believe. But now, if all he did was this, that would be fault finding. But he didn't stop there. Let's keep reading now. Are you glad? Yes, Somebody say, I love the word of God. So in verse 26, he says, Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Then verse 27 says, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the thing concerning himself. So notice, he has shown them what they didn't get right. He is now taking them to get it right. Showing them from the word of God. That's what correction is. But this is what you haven't got right. You have not believed what the prophet said. So I'm going to show you again. But why we came here is because I wanted you to see that in teaching new creation realities, you have to explain Old Testament facts. That, and the Lord Jesus Christ, the first Bible teacher of the new creation. This was after he was raised from the dead. He expounded to them. The word expounded means to teach. To explain. That's what he did. And that's the mark of a good Bible teacher. You take the old and expound it in order to bring out the new. There is therefore, there is therefore no New Testament teaching outside and in isolation of the Old Testament scriptures. There is no such thing. Did you see that? I'll say it again. There is no New Testament teaching outside of and in isolation of Old Testament scriptures. All New Testament teaching is founded on Old Testament scriptures and facts. 
We explain them all scripture. Second Timothy three sixteen is given by the inspiration of God, or is God breathing? Do you see? And when you see scriptures, it's amazing. You don't find that word scriptures written in the Old Testament texts. It is in the New that they refer to scriptures. Why? Because the scriptures they are talking about is the Old Testament books. And that's why the Bible says Jesus did the same thing. And so you notice Paul speaking to Timothy says in 2 Timothy 3, 7, 16, all scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable, that is usable for doctrine. So it means our doctrine in the New Testament is from Old Testament scriptures. Is the explanation of, of those scriptures. For reproof, elentials, evidence. Same Greek word you find in Hebrews 11 and verse 1. Now faith is the substance of things over the evidence, elentials, of things not seen. So what gives evidence to New Testament teaching is Old Testament scriptures. I can't substantiate any New Testament teaching without the Old Testament scriptures. Are you hearing me now? So you've got to get used to all those names in your Old Testament Bible. They are not going anywhere. If you are born again, better be, begin to befriend those words. Arauna, Shamga, ah, Adonijah, Jebushites. Very close to Jebu. <laughs> Gergashites, Amorites, Sinakeru. Oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. Adonijah. That was there's another one, Abijah, Abijah. Please, when you read it, don't go and add Warabiakum. It's not there in the Bible. <laughs> Ehud. Elihu. Those names, you see, if you really read Old Testament, you'll be able to scare the devil easily. Those things can be scary. Just Elihu. <laughs> the devil will flee, I'm telling you. <laughs> the Rechabites. Now, let, let's put it to a test. Look at your neighbor. Say, give me three Old Testament names. Oh, yeah. <laughs> three. <laughs> Very easy. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I hope, I hope somebody is not saying surely goodness and mercy. Ah. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> and I tell you, as you begin to understand this, and you read the Old Testament, it will help you. Many years ago, 20, 2015 precisely, I remember how I began to say in church then, we're still back in Ethan, and I would say, you know what, I think it's good for you when a person gets saved to first of all be exposed to new creation realities. Then thereafter, with that understanding, go back and start reading the Old Testament. Because the, the New Testament should be the eyeglasses with which you read the Old. It will change your life. I'll say that again. Use the New Testament as your eyeglasses, the lenses through which you read the, the Old Testament. It will make a whole lot of sense to you. So it means a person who feels like he doesn't have any business with the Old Testament is because he has not really been exposed to light. If you have light and the revelation of Christ, you will love to read Old Testament books. 
you would love to read them. Because now you are reading them with, with the understanding of what they represent. <laughs> Glory to God. Did you see this? So, understand that therefore. Uh, so, your hand was in Second Samuel, so let's go back there. And now we're going to see one of those names. Adonijah. So, another case where an altar was built for intervention. First Kings 1, 50-52. And Adonijah feared because of Solomon and arose and went and caught hold of the horns of the altar. And he was told Solomon, saying, Behold, Adonijah feared King Solomon. For lo, he had caught hold on the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear unto me today that he will not slay his servant with the sword. And Solomon said, If he will show himself a worthy man, there shall not an heir of him fall to the earth. But if wickedness shall be found in him, he shall die. So notice the guy doesn't want to die. And he's going to make an appeal to Solomon the king. Did you see? To whom he had lost the throne. Which was not going to be easy anyway in the first place. But of all things to use to appeal to Solomon, he uses the altar because he knew Solomon would never be able to refuse him. So he went to the altar to seek intervention. Mercy in this case. So the altar, did you see? Altars are built for divine intervention. Another one is that altars are unto God. Very important thing for us to know. Altars are built unto God, not unto man. And so you see in Genesis 8, 20 to 21, And Noah built an altar unto the Lord and took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl and offered bond offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled the sweet savour. And the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground anymore for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite anymore every living thing as I have done. So notice, he built an altar, but he was unto the Lord. Of course, the next verse says, as, as long as the earth remaineth, seed, time and harvest, did you see? Summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. Genesis twelve seven. And the Lord appeared unto Abraham and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land? And there builded he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. So altars are built unto the Lord. In Genesis 13, 18, Then Abraham removed his tent and came and dwelt in the plain of Mamre, which is in Hebron, and built there an altar unto the Lord. In Genesis 35, 1, And God said unto Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, and dwell there, and make there an altar unto God. In Acts 17, 23, Paul is speaking to the men of Athens. And he said, For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar. Did you see this? With this inscription, To the unknown God. Even those Athenians, they built their altar, supposedly to God, but unfortunately they didn't know him. Albeit, they still built it unto him. And Paul says, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. So altars are built unto God. The altar is also sacred and holy. The altar is sacred and holy. The altar is sacred and holy. In Exodus 29, 44, and I will sanctify the tabernacle of the congregation. And the altar. 
I will sanctify also both Aaron and his sons to minister to me in the priest's office. Look at that. The word sanctify means to set apart for holy use. So the altar is sacred and the altar is holy. You know, yesterday at the HSOM, that's Heritage School of Ministry, by the way, you should enroll for it. You see, as a believer, you need to grow in the things of God and learn. Did you see, there is only so much we can cover in services. That's why we have a ministry school that you should enroll in and learn more intently the things of God. And there is a batch that is about to graduate because there's module one, module two, module three. And module three just has one more class and they'll be done. And it's core ministry teaching. And yesterday I was teaching a class on introduction to shepherding. That's pastoral work. Every Christian needs to learn that. All the duties of a pastor or a shepherd. Now when we say shepherd or pastor, it's not just the pastor of a church. The team lead is a shepherd. The cell leader is a shepherd. Did you see that? One of the duties of a shepherd is to teach people and show them the difference between the holy and the common. The altar of God is holy. The house of God is holy. And don't join those who say stupid things like, but the building is not the house of God. The house of God is us. So therefore, I can come to church and I can stretch my leg anyhow I like. Hey, hey, not here. This is not the customer service church. Are you getting what I'm talking about? Here, we revere God. What makes it holy is the fact that it has been dedicated for that purpose. So it is a dedication of a thing that determines what it is or how sacred it is. This building was erected for the work of God. In case you don't know, it was just a, what do you call that now? A steel structure. We put up walls here. You see that? Put the ceiling there. Put the AC here. Glory to God. She has for you to sit. Sound, sounding into your ear. And we built an altar. That's why nobody is allowed to take pictures here. Go and take pictures in your house. Not here. I see churches where people after service, they will just go. <laughs> oh my God. This is what I'm saying. And that's why you notice, some people say, oh, but we're in the New Testament. Well, it's still New Testament in 1 Corinthians 11 when Paul wrote to the Corinthians and said, what is it I hear about you guys that you come together and then you come to eat and drink, people get drunk. Paul said, have you not houses? And I was saying, don't you understand? Some things should be kept away from the guardian of the saints and from the church of God. He said, don't you have houses to do all those kind of things? And people are coming to church with their, with their energy. <laughs> And that one, you shouldn't even drink it at home. Or anywhere at all in life. And you say, Christian, we're smoking shisha. People are crazy, sha. <laughs> thank you, thank you. <laughs> My God. <laughs> You wish you pay me for coming you because <laughs> <laughs> and now for real, you can't be smoking things like that because it's not even a question of morality. It's a question of sensibility. It kills people. I read books 
And I've heard doctors say one puff of shisha is about four cigarettes. Wow. One puff. They inhale four cigarettes. Yeah, doctors, yeah, be doctor where? You are not sure. Okay, you are not particular about those ones. I want a car. I want car. I want more way. I see somebody who sit down with it and it's just inhaling. You know, there's a man of God, you know, went to the people of the Lord in the 1800s. His name is Charles Harding Spurgeon. Some of you know Charles Spurgeon. He was a chain smoker. Amazingly, now before you judge him, his generation had many, most of the notable preachers in his generation were smokers. Smokers, chain smokers. William Booth, the founder of Salvation Army, invited him to preach. Now, Charles Bodden was a British man. Invited him to the U.S. He arrives in his carriage, smoking as a guest minister. <laughs> <laughs> so, you can imagine. You say, welcome, sir. Welcome, sir. Close, shall I say, how far? Bobby Ward, I'm a shooting ward. Edward Ward, no, man. I remember the old pastor once was say, Abu Mamu, you are far, go, far, go. You are far, you are far, you are A guest minister. <laughs> oh my goodness. And so somebody asked him and said, We're concerned about this, you're smoking. You know what Charles Fortune told them? Now nah, he was a very brilliant man. And that's one of the undoings of men like that. Because you can't, there is no way you can get them. He has an answer. Listen to this. So they asked him, I said, we are concerned about your smoking. He said, well, he said, as long as I don't smoke in excess. So they asked him, what would be excess? He said, as long as I don't smoke two cigarettes at a time. <laughs> he said, as long as I don't put two sticks in my mouth at the same time, it's not excessive. So it means I can smoke one per time, as many as possible per day. As long as I don't put two in my mouth at the same time. He said, that's the meaning of excess for him. Guess what? He didn't live long. He didn't live long. And that, that was one of the major things that led to the deterioration of his health. Smoking, smoking, smoking. So some things are not morality. So in case you're under the sound of my voice, you're worried. But the Bible never says anything about smoking. Well, it doesn't. But God gave you sense. <laughs> and I remember teaching you know, a, uh, some uh, minister's Bible school recently. And I said to them, you know, those kind of things are the reasons why some people who ought to have lived long for the sake of their work, they died young. I believe a teacher should live long. Long enough so that he can be alive to correct extremes that people bring into his teaching. And a very good example of that is Dad Egan. Brother Egan lived, I mean, his ministry alone spanned for 70 years. His ministry spanned for 70 years. The entire span of Brother Egan's ministry was longer than the entire life of Charles Spurgeon. Wow. Let me say it again so that it will sink in. The ministry span of Kenneth Egan, 70 years, was longer than the entire lifespan of Charles Spurgeon. And there was a time where people were bringing extremes to Kenneth Higgins' ministry and teachings. He was alive to correct it. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. 
So anyway, tell them don't smoke. <laughs> Should we have to tell the believer not to swear? We have to. After all, Paul said to the vision, let him that steal, steal no more. I want to tell you, I want to tell you. My God. So don't smoke. Now, nobody's beating anybody down. So if you, if you have a challenge with a bottle, stop it. Alcohol is also not good for your health. Shall you? They say, yeah, we with the eye, you. We like high things. High sense. <laughs> iPhone. Ah. No. <laughs> My God. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I tell you, you know, sometimes you do, and I and I want to encourage you, you should do medical checkup. If you are over thirty-five, you should go for medical checkup once a year. It's important. Doing medical checkup does not mean you are not in faith. No. If you have any challenges in your body, you're feeling somehow, go do a check. At least it will, it will help you know what to use your faith for. You should do medical checkup. You want to go on vacation, you do checkup. You do checkup. You see what I'm saying? I'm not afraid to check my do checkup. What am I afraid of? I'm healthy. But if I thought like check up now, if they even say there's something, 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 then don't, what's the something? Tell me the name. I'll come back. You'll check it again. You won't find it. Yes, so yes, that's the attitude you have as a believer. So when you say Christian, say me, I don't do check up, or he's afraid. Yes. He's afraid. And let me tell you, your neglect of things like that will not say that God automatically will save you. That neglect can kill you. Because now by neglect, you have not addressed the issue medically. Neither have you addressed it by faith. Yes, sir. So the, the issue is left unaddressed. Mm. You see what I'm saying? So going for checkup is not against faith. Checking your BP is not against faith. The first time I had to buy BP check, sincerely speaking, it was a battle. I said, man, of it, what, what was all this nonsense? Why are we buying BP machine? And it was expensive too. So all this money can be used for the gospel. What's all this? <laughs> so my BB is okay. Why should you have it? Because a doctor said you, you come for check on my health. But you, do you have BB? I said, I don't have it. He said, ah, how can you not have? You should have it. It's a normal thing. Just get it. I said, what's wrong with this person? I've been living healthy all my life. My friend, don't leave this nonsense, John. So reluctantly, I bought it. I couldn't use it for almost two months. I said, why should I be checking BB? I am healthy. All I need to do is to make confessions. Because <laughs> I want to help some of you this morning. And the Lord said to me one day, He said, Look, do you how do you know what the time is? I said, I checked my wristwatch. He said it's the same thing as checking the BP. That's all. So when you check the time, is it against faith? So what's the big deal about checking your BP? So I said, eh. He said, eh. <laughs> My God. So I carried the thing, I put it there, and I checked. He said, Do you see now? Normal. I said, glory. glory. Now, you know me. I, I kept checking again. Yeah, let's check more. <laughs> and I'm checking. I said, glory to God. Glory. <laughs> <laughs> so, common sense is not against faith. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Say amen, somebody. Amen. Hallelujah. All right, then. First Corinthians 9.13. Do ye not know that they which minister 
about holy things, live of the things of the temple. And they which wait at the altar are partakers with the altar. He's talking about the sacredness of that altar. First Corinthians 10, 18. Behold, Israel after the flesh are not they which eat of the sacrifice, partakers of the altar. Did you see that? Now, when he says somebody is a partaker of the altar, he's talking about those who have been consecrated as priests there. Like Aaron and his sons. Hebrews 7, 13. For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe of which no man gave attendance at the altar. That is, he was not mentioned in the Old Testament about the altar. And he, had, he didn't have to be mentioned talking about Lord Jesus Christ. Because the altar is for him. Yes, sir. Did you see that? <laughs> Approaching the altar must be holy and sacred. Approaching the altar must be holy and sacred. Exodus 20, 25 to 26. And if thou wilt make an altar of stone, thou shalt not build it of hewn stone. For if thou lift up thy tool upon it, thou hast polluted it. Neither shalt thou go up by steps unto mine altar, that thy nakedness be not discovered thereon. So he was even telling them even their clothing and all that. Did you see the sacredness, all the details? In the New Living Translation, it puts it this way. It says, if you use stones to build my altar, use only natural uncut stones. Do not shape the stones with a tool, for that would make the altar unfit for holy use. And do not approach my altar by going up steps. If you do, someone might look up under your clothing and see your nakedness. Did you see that? In the approach. Now, notice the altar is a place of blessing. The altar is a place of blessing. Exodus 20, verse 24. An altar of earth thou shalt make unto me and shall sacrifice thereon thy bond offerings and thy peace offerings. And he says, thy sheep and thine oxen, in all places where I record my name, I will come unto thee and I will bless thee. Somebody say, I'm blessed. Yes. Now, blood is sprinkled and shed on the altar. Blood is sprinkled and shed on the altar. Exodus 24, 6. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Exodus 29, 12. And thou shalt take of the blood of the bullock and put it upon the horns of the altar with thy finger and pour all the blood beside the bottom of the altar. They poured blood on it. In Exodus uh, 29, 16. And thou shalt slay the ram and thou shalt take his blood and sprinkle it round about upon the altar. Did you see this? Leviticus 1.5 And he shall kill the bullock before the Lord and the priests Aaron's sons shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood round about upon the altar that is by the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. So they put blood on it. You will also see that the sacrifice is slaughtered on the altar. Leviticus 1.10-11 and if his offering be of the flocks, namely of the sheep or of the goats, for a bond sacrifice, he shall bring it a male without blemish. And he shall kill it on the side of the altar northward before the Lord. And the priest Aaron's son shall sprinkle his blood round about upon the altar. So they kill the sacrifice upon the altar. And this is what will show you that Jesus Christ crucified on the cross, that cross stood and represented an altar. Because the, the lamb or the ram or the goat was to be slaughtered on the altar. 
Now notice there's a difference between the killing, the slaying of the sacrifice and the offering of the sacrifice. They're not the same. So he was slaughtered on the altar, but his blood was not offered on the, on the, on the altar. That is on the cross rather. Jesus was slaughtered on the cross, but his blood was offered in heaven. That's why we say he died on the cross. They killed him, crucified him on the cross. Just like every ram and all that must be slaughtered. Did you see that? In Leviticus 9, 18, he slew also the bullock and the ram for his sacrifice of peace offerings, which was for the people. And Aaron's sons presented unto him the blood, which is sprinkled upon the altar round about. You would also see Leviticus 17, 11, Numbers 18, 17. You can write us down. Leviticus 17, 11, Numbers 18, 17. We see King Hezekiah in 2 Chronicles 29, verse 20 to 22. 2 Chronicles 29, verse 20 to 22. Then Hezekiah the king arose early and gathered the rulers of the city and went up to the house of the Lord. And they brought seven bullocks and seven rams and seven lambs and seven he goats. So many things they had to do. All these things are found consummated in Christ. You see, the ease with which you can lift your hands and say, thank you, Jesus, today, it wasn't that easy in their days. They had to do all these kinds of things. So you notice that God has done all things well in the new creation. So the Bible says, he killed all these seven, seven, seven bullocks, rams, seven lambs, seven goats for his sin offering for the kingdom and for the sanctuary and for, the, and for Judah. And he commanded the priests, the sons of Aaron, to offer them on the altar of the Lord. So they killed the bullocks and the priest received the blood and sprinkled it on the altar. Likewise, when they had killed the rams, they sprinkled the blood upon the altar. They killed also the lambs and they sprinkled the blood upon the altar. Blood, blood, blood everywhere. You also see verse 23 to 24. And they brought forth the he goats for the sin offering before the king and the congregation. Man has always had to die for women. He goats, no she goats. You didn't notice. And they laid their hands upon them. Did you see? And the priest killed them and they made reconciliation with their blood upon the altar to make an atonement for all Israel. For the king commanded that the burnt offering and the sin offering should be made for all Israel. And to the glory of God, we also have an altar. We saw earlier in Hebrews 13.10, we have an altar whereof they have no right to eat, which serve the tabernacle. And you notice that the altar is found in the temple. Did you see this? And we are the temple of the Lord. In Acts 7.48, you will notice therefore that God never dwelt in any of those buildings they had in the Old Testament. God was never at any time inside it. Someone will say, what? What about the smoke? God is not smoke. He says, I'll be the most high. Dwelleth not in temples made with hands. As saith the prophet. Anytime you hear statements like this, you've got to find where he is referring to. He's referring to Isaiah 66. You see? We're going to see that very soon, verse 1 and 2. But let's see in the same Acts of Apostle, chapter 17, verse 24 and 25. He said, God that made the world, this is Paul now speaking. Now, earlier on in Acts 7:48, that's Stephen speaking. 
Here in Acts 17, 24 and 25 is Paul speaking. He says, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. We see again another preacher in the New Testament referring to the scripture. 25. Neither is worship with men's hands. Now when he says men's hands, he's talking about things man-made. As though he needed anything. Seen. He giveth to all life and breath and how many things? Come on, talk like your voice is just how many things does he give? You remember in first Timothy 6 17, Paul says the same thing. Chat them who are rich in his world, not to be high-minded, not to trust in the uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly how many things? Come on, I talk to me. How many things? For what purpose? To enjoy. Come on, say it again. To enjoy. to enjoy. Don't be afraid of the word. Say it again. Say it. To, enjoy. to enjoy. Say I have all things to enjoy. You know, some people think enjoyment is, a, is not a Christian word. Look at it right there. God gives us really all things to enjoy. Who wants us to enjoy? God. Come on, talk to me. Who wants us to enjoy? God. Say after me. Say God, God. wants me wants to enjoy my, life. enjoy my life. So I will enjoy my life. Say it again. I will enjoy my life. I enjoy my life. Now, if you're a man, you alternate. I enjoy my wife. I enjoy my children. I enjoy my gifts. I enjoy my money. I enjoy the good things of life. On a high level. And after a godly soul. And for a good witness. Shout amen, somebody. Be seated. Glory to God. I just wanted you to see that and affirm that to yourself. God wants us to enjoy. That's why we put it in our confession. Put it in our confession. We're getting our buildings. We're getting our lands. We're getting our houses. We're getting our vehicles. We're getting our equipment. Everything we need to do the will of God and to enjoy life on a high level and after a godly sword and for a good witness. Woo! <laughs> so beautiful, isn't it? If you are new here, you got to take those confessions seriously in your life. Because you don't have what you say once in a while. You have what you say all the time. So it's not something you just say once in a while. You just remember, oh yeah, I'm getting my buildings. It has to be consistent. And as, as a church now, you know this is, is becoming part of us. In the last two weeks, less than two weeks, we've had about four testimonies of properties. Ownership. Let, let me tell you, the latest one, a single sister in the Ibadan church. She's single. Young lady. She got a property. <laughs> The word works. Hallelujah. It works. It works all the time. It works all the time. It works all the time. Every time. 100% of the time. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Be seated. You see, because you are going to have what you say. You will not have what you read. You will know what you read, but you won't have what you read. Are you getting it? You will know you will know what you read. 
Do you see? But you can't have what you read. Until you say it, you can't have it. And I think it's an aberration for a local church to not have consistent confessions. It's an aberration. A church, the garden of the saints, a local assembly of God's people must have consistent faith confessions. It's one of the major components of a local church. There must be confessions that we say regularly as a people. Why? You see, because those words not only bring certain realities to us, they also shield us. They determine what can happen and what must not happen. Because what I don't say is not permitted to happen in my life. Anything contrary to what I am saying is not permitted in my life. So I can't, I can't suffer like others in old age. And they say they can't remember. Can't remember what? Me. Not me. Because the Lord is bringing me into the best shape of my life thus far. My best days are not ahead. They are in the present, continuous, perpetual. <laughs> Did you get that? Some people say, your best days are in front of you. It, 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 sounds, it sounds noble, but if you look at it well, you'll notice that it keeps postponing. They never get there. So, our best days are in our present, continuous, perpetual. Yeah. So, it means that every day is better than the previous one. So, it's not far off. Is with me now. My best days are here. I am living in, the, in my best days. Oh, glory. As a church, we are in our best days. The best days of HOF are here. By tomorrow, they will still be here. <laughs> Woo! Glory. <laughs> because we are not just raising singers, we are raising ministers. Ministers ministers. So if you're in this church and you feel oh, I- I'd like to use my talent for God. Welcome. And our welcome to you is first of all, go through process. Because we want you to last. <laughs> so when I tell you these things, I mean it. Jesus Tarzan is coming 35 years from now, 40 years from now, 50 years from now. We'll be doing the same things. Yeah. But on a bigger, 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 bigger level. Yeah. yeah. Ministry is not a 100 meter dash. It's a marathon. So don't rush. Calm down. What about if Jesus now comes and go, ah, so what's your problem? (laughs) (laughs) So just calm down. Just calm down. There's time. There are billions of souls to be reached. So there are still many expressions of ministry God will give us. God is as, as urgent as the work of the kingdom, yet God is not in a hurry. Isn't that amazing? Because hurriedness is when you jump process. Urgency is the fact that you are diligent to do what must be done. The way it ought to be done. Don't mistake urgency for hastiness. They are not the same. When you are hasty, you begin to violate principles, violate order, violate process. And that's why truly, when you see something that was hastily done, it can't be well done. And you now realize that you will still have to go back again. So you have wasted time. Then you realize that the person who is going through process is not wasting time. 
Because if you have to fell a tree and you have a dull axe and instead of you to take time to sharpen your axe, you are in a hurry. I want to start hitting it. You are wasting time. But the person who takes his time to go and sharpen the edge, you will be wondering, just come and address this tree. No. The fact that you are addressing the tree with a, with a very blunt axe does not mean you are making progress. Sir. You are already on the stage. You are already addressing the tree. But you are wasting your time. The man who has not come on the stage, who is busy preparing, is not wasting time, sir. Because by the time he steps on the stage, immediately we fell the tree. He will get the job done. There are vessels of God like that. So don't be always looking to jump to, to the limelight. No. The moments of preparation is not a waste of time. It's part of the work. So if people ask you, why have you so started doing this? Why don't you allow, they don't allow you to do blah, blah. So you have not started working. No, I'm working. What work are you doing? Preparation. It's called work. It's still work. It's part of the work. It's part of the work. It's part of the work. That's the understanding you've got to have. Because we live in a generation that doesn't like process. They call process a waste of time. They want to blow. And that's exactly what they do. They blow. When something blows, that's the end of it. God doesn't want you to blow. He wants you to grow. What grows up stays up. What goes up will come down. It's called the law of gravity. If you go up, if you go up, you will come down. But if you grow, nothing can bring you down. Because in the process of growth, you develop all it takes to stay up. But when you go up, there's no process. So there's nothing to keep you up there. You're going to have to come down. And that's not the plan of God for you. And when your, when your perspective changes and aligns with the word of God and the wisdom of God, you realize that process itself is sweet. Oh boy, it is. I tell you, you when God brings you to certain levels in your life, when you look back at your moments of process, you will miss it. <laughs> I remember days, you know, as a bachelor, I'll wake up in the middle of the night, OAU campus, staff quarters, where I was living. And I'll just wake up, freedom. I wasn't married, I wasn't, just wake up and just pace the floor and pray the Holy Ghost round. Go from quarters, enter sports center, go to road one, and just pray in the Holy Ghost with Dalamia. And I'll be passing by my members, they won't know it's me. They'll think it's an allergy. <laughs> I enjoy those where I just say, I say, my way, Shandro, Gembro. And sometimes those days when you're walking like that, you see two becoming one in the dark. <laughs> I used to do some arrow when I was in school. And I was like, Feel that! <laughs> oh boy, man. <laughs> I miss those days. Who I can't do that again now. I, oh my God! <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Last time I ever tried to go to Soul Center about two years ago, or well, like last year or so, sometime before the, before the lockdown, it was already getting dark. I just got there, I stood, hoping nobody would see me. Next thing, that's that's I have to just leave. <laughs> That means that environment. I said, there's nobody knew me. What's my own? Just preached to the few people I had. Three and a half members. <laughs> I really had three and a half. You're wondering, who was the half? Yeah. Ah. You don't know half. <laughs> Hopefully none of you is half now. <laughs> the half member was the one we're not sure whether he would come or not. <laughs> so he was a half member. But he eventually became whole. Some of you are half this morning. 
Ask anybody, did you come on Wednesday? <laughs> because, because if there are two services a week and you only come for one, you are half now. <laughs> I got you this morning. <laughs> oh my God. That's a good one there. So, we are in a new week. Let's see who is half again. Wednesday is coming. Did you see? So we are the temple of God. We are the temple of God. King Solomon in 1 Kings 8 verse 27. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Solomon also alluded to this fact that God doesn't dwell in temples built with human hands. See what he said. He said, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. How much less this house that I have builded. Solomon has built the most expensive temple ever. And the man is saying, I actually know that. It's not good enough for you. It's not good enough for you. It's not good enough for you. But they were doing all those things to foreshadow a reality. So Isaiah 66, finally, verse 1 and 2. Thus saith the Lord, the heaven is my throne. No, this is God saying it by himself. The heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that ye built unto me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things as mine hand made. And all those things have been, saith the Lord. Then he now tells us, but to this man will I look. And as a statement to pay attention to. So this man will I look because we will later find that these words came out from the mouth of Solomon as well when he was dedicating his temple. That God looked toward this temple. But God says, I'm not looking towards that one. I'm not looking towards the temple you built. I'm looking towards a man. A kind of man. What is that man? He tells us. He said, glory to Jesus. Alright. Even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and trembleth at my word. What does it mean to tremble at his word? To believe his word of salvation. So this man, so when he says this man, that's a very definite article. That is, there is this kind of man God is looking at. And that man had not come into existence at that time. He is the new creation man. He is the new creation man. I am that man. Come on, I say, I am, that man. I am that man. So in Jesus' words, John 14, 23, Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, so notice now, because God had said in Isaiah 66, verse 1 and 2, To this man will I look, the man, did you see who is poor and contrite in spirit? The same way you see Isaiah saying, Blessed, I mean, the Lord Jesus saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Poor in spirit there, notice he didn't say poor of money. He didn't say they're poor because they don't have money or they don't have houses or cars. Poor in spirit means the man who is in need of the life of God. Did you see that? Poor and contrite in spirit, he said. That's why in Luke 1, when Elizabeth began to speak, he said, God has sent away the rich empty. But they are satisfied the longing soul. And what is he referring to there? The rich not because he has money. He's not talking about the rich with money. Those who feel they can be justified by themselves. He sends them away. But those who come hungry, poor, knowing that look, I cannot make it to, be, to have a right standing before you without your help. He satisfies them. 
So understand the people in spirit is not saying that he's not talking about being broke. The same way he said, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Isaiah 6, 1, is anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. And don't mistake it, the poor there again is not those who don't have money. The poor still remains those in need of salvation. The poverty of a man, the major poverty of a man is to have, to have, to live a life without Christ. To, to not have the life of God in him. That's the poverty of man. Any man, that's why it says, what shall it profit him a man to gain this whole world and to lose his soul? He said, what shall he give in exchange for that? In other words, he may have all the material things in the world, but he doesn't have enough or anything to give in exchange for the redemption of his soul. So it means he can be rich and be on Forbes list, but he is poor spiritually because all the money he has cannot buy salvation. But once he gets saved, he's rich in spirit. Glory to God. The life of God makes me rich. <laughs> Woo, glory to God. So when he said to this man, will I look the man who is poor and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Hear the way Jesus now puts it. John 14, 23. Jesus answered and said unto him, if a man love me, he will keep my words. That's what it means to tremble at his word. And my father will love him. Now, when he says, keep my word, he's not talking about commandments and all that. He's talking about to believe the gospel. He, will, he keep my words, and my father will love him, and will come unto him, and we will make our abode. So, God is saying, I'm not, I don't dwell in the temples you built, but there is a man I will dwell in. Jesus tells us that man. He says, that man who loves me, keeps my word. That is, believes my word. Did you see? He said, my father will love him, and then we my father and I, we will come to him and we will make him our hope. So he's the one that God is looking to. He's the temple, the house God wants to live in. As beautiful as the temple of Solomon. Very expensive. In today's money, billions of dollars. When you see in 1 Chronicles 29, how David gave towards that temple before he died. David gave everything he had. He gave all his treasures. He wanted to build it himself. God said, no. He left it for his son to build. As expensive as all those things, God said, I don't live there. He said, towards this man will I look. And Jesus tells us that man. He said, my father and I, we will come to him. And we will make him our abode. We will move him. We will come to stay. That man is our house. Our master bedroom is inside him. I was preaching to two ladies yesterday. Just saw them. I was going to buy something and I saw them. And I began to preach to them. And I said, listen, listen, listen. I said, God. God lives inside man. They were looking at me somehow. I said, listen. He's here. I said, when I entered here, God came here now. They were looking somehow and said, you're really only I said, God came here. God came here. God came here. I said, are you born again? I said, yes. I said, beautiful. So what does it mean to be born again? I said, I was a Muslim. I started going to church in 2015. So I've been going to talk for when I was young, but I became serious in 2015. I said, Madam, you are not saved, though. So I say you just like going to church. That's not what it means to be saved, though. And in case you understand my voice, you say you like going to church. That's not salvation, ma, sir. Eh? Coming to church doesn't make you saved any more than going to a garage makes you a car. You need to receive Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. Savior because he died. He was buried and he rose again on the third day. 
and he's ascended to the right hand of God. Woo, glory. My God. Then you become that man to whom God looks and he has come to stay in you and he will never leave. One thing I found out over the years that God doesn't sleep outside. <laughs> God never sleeps outside. God is not an idiot father. No. He always sleeps at home. In fact, God runs a home office. He works from home. God works from home all the time. All the time. I am his home. Let me tell you something. If you listen to these teachings very well, they are very self-explanatory. There's a word Paul used called the phrase apt to teach. Yesterday in the age of I was talking about three streams of teaching. And um, just like disciples of Jesus would do when he says some things and he doesn't really give all the explanation during his teaching, they, they will come and ask him later. So when we got him yesterday, you know, Fikawa came, you know, came upstairs and said, Dad, you said there are three streams. You mentioned one. What are the remaining two? So if you need it, go and ask him. He'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Did you see? But the first one is to be apt to teach. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach. There is no Greek word for the word apt. So the entire phrase is from one Greek word, and the word is didacticos. It actually means instructive. What it means is that the teachings you are receiving are instructive enough to make a teacher out of you. And that is determined by your posture towards that teaching. So you can come to church to listen, to be apt to teach. Now, notice now, it doesn't mean you come to church just so you can learn enough to go and teach people. No. But that you pay attention well enough that the word gets into you, takes root into you. And by so doing, you are instructed that you can also teach other people. And that is general for all believers. Because you see, Paul is talking about a bishop here. And if you notice when he began, he said, whoever desires to be a bishop, that person, of course, has to be a believer in the first place. And this app to teach is not something he now needs to start doing. It's something he ought to have been doing as a believer. So don't be confused by a bishop. Notice that a bishop then must be. It is a bishop should be or start being. Already he should be. So it means as a believer, you should be this. And so if by God's election or divine providence in the local church, we now want to choose a leader and God says you are part of the group they should choose. We should be able to look at you and say from the way you have always been, you qualify to be a leader. So don't think this is something that only bishops or leaders, because the word bishop is an elder or an overseer. Did you see that? It's for all Christians. A believer should live like this so that just like they did in Acts chapter 6, if there is a need to choose leaders, we look in the congregation people who ought to have been living this way then we say okay let's speak from them to call them to leadership so don't see this as though it's just for leaders it's for all saints these are the way these are the things that should characterize your life and one of it is you must be apt to teach that is somebody who learns so well that you are capable of teaching other people and that's the reason why we do our due diligence in this church. And like I said, if you listen well to the teaching and you pay attention, you have a good attitude to it, you're taking your notes and you're listening again and again, you'll find that if they give you the opportunity, you can teach people. 
can teach people. You can gather people now and begin to explain sacrifices in the New Testament to them. And what you do is you listen, follow the way the thing is presented. Teaching must always be systematic. One thing first before the other. Are you getting that? You must know what to start with. You must know what to now proceed to. Then you must know what to proceed to after that. That's the way to teach. With simplicity. Simplicity is the hallmark of a good teacher. <clears throat> Not complications. Just say all kinds of things. We don't even know where it's going again. Use all kinds of big, big English. And then we are wondering, sir, what did we do to offend you? Why have you come to confuse our life? No. Simple. You know, Pastor, I told me yesterday, he said, some folks came to the church in Oshobu, you know, new folks, like one, two of them, and they went to visit them and they said, your teachings are too simple. We want something deep. And I said, Shobaja, what's it going to fall into a well? What do you want? What do you do? People will say something is too simple. That thing is calling simple. He doesn't know it. He doesn't know it. He doesn't know it. I think it's about Einstein that said, if you cannot teach it simple enough for a six-year-old to understand, you yourself don't know it. And that's to show you that simplicity also shows that you know something, you know what you're talking about. If you can't teach it with simplicity, it means you don't know it. So when you see somebody who is teaching it with simplicity, it's because he really knows it. <laughs> are you getting what I'm saying? Uh, Ask that person, what are the deep things? You say hearing things like uh, realms, portals, mysteries, <laughs> ancient wells. You see, you just don't have a list. <laughs> Sorcerer. And similarly, all these things you're talking about have to be led by the Spirit of God. Those are for babies. Eh? <laughs> Go and ask Apostle Paul. So, what are the things for mature Christians? Things that are not in the Bible. You no know, people like to hear high-sounding things. Christianity is not about hearing high-sounding rubbish. It's about what is in the Bible. And Paul wasn't tired of it. When he stood for Agrippa, he said, look, having received the help of God, I continue to this day saying no other thing than the same things that Moses, can you imagine? He said, what the Moses said is what I'm explaining. You know, Paul is saying, I didn't come to say any new thing. And he said, I've been saying the same thing. By the way, Paul lasted in ministry. When he wrote to Philemon, he said, look, by the way, this is Paul, the agent, talking to you. So I'm an old man now. I've been in this thing for a long time. And I'm preaching the same thing. Go read what you wrote to the Ephesians and read what you wrote to the Colossians. The same thing. So when you say these things are too simple, you are deeper than Paul. <laughs> and if you are deeper than Paul, even God will look and say, ah, you are deeper than me. <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, once you are deeper than God, uh, there's no deeper life for you. <laughs> Because Christianity is not about saying or knowing new things. It's about getting a better understanding of the same things. That's what Christianity is about. Do you love it? Yes, 
But you want to say deep things? And say, the deep things of God. For the spirit, the spirit. Because if you say spirit, it's not deep. It's too simple. <laughs> so if it's deep, it's spirit. Spirit is very deep. You know, there's a difference between spirit and spirit. Are you, are you getting what I'm saying? Now? No, no, no. If you don't get don't look at my hand. You see, because... <laughs> Safety is in simplicity. Because then nobody's trying to hide anything from you. You know, why people are trying to say all those things, they are hiding things from you. I'm aware, and sometimes I think maybe it's the use of words because there are very good men who probably just don't know better in their way of expressing what they know. But when you say person keeps saying mysteries, 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 no. There are no mysteries in the New Testament. The New Testament is actually the unraveling of mysteries. Do you understand that? As I see, every time Paul spoke about mysteries, he said, I make known to you the mystery. So anything that was a mystery has already been unveiled in Christ. No man can unveil anything again. Christ has revealed what was hidden. Everything. Everything. To continue to talk mystery, mystery, mystery is to take believers back to the dark ages. We're no longer in those ages, and we will never go back there. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Never again. Yes. Ah, never again, sir. Yes. As we stay in the Word of God, you see, we begin to grow in that knowledge. The knowledge doesn't grow. We grow in it. So notice, the knowledge doesn't grow. It's the same. It is man that we grow in that knowledge. That we grow in that knowledge. That you're not beginning to understand better and better and better. And you're like, wow. But what are we understanding? The same things. The same things. You get to know salvation better. Yes, sir. Ah, this salvation. What a wonder of God. What a wonder of God. Just like we're looking at the temple. That we are his temple. So it means all the razzmatazz they did in the Old Testament. There are like three major temples in the Old Testament. The, temple, the tabernacle of Moses. The temple of Solomon. And that of Zerubbabel. All three combined fade in comparison to the man in Christ. That's what Haggai was saying. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than the glory of the former. The former is the house that they built with hands. Smoke came. They called it Shekinah. No smoke is on your head, but there is a greater glory on you, brother. <laughs> See, to help you really understand the gravity, that is what some traditional people call shrine. Because it's the same thing. Shrine, temple, where God is worshipped. You are God's shrine. <laughs> That's why you cannot be afraid that somebody took your name to a shrine. Amy God God's shrine. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. They carry your name to a shrine. They are talking, they are talking. They say, okay, what, 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 what be? See, I am shrine here. Bring your name here. This is where I am. This is shrine. If you are looking for shrine. You see how these things will liberate you from fear. You know, Ratok said one day, uh, Ratok is the director of Rema, and he said, he said years back, somebody said, uh, he said, the person is, he asked Juju that uh, if you caught him, he, he, nothing will happen. <laughs> he said they should bring him blade. And he told the person, he said, Are you sure you want to test it? The person said, he said Okay, bring blade. And he said, He was just smiling. He said, If I caught you, you will cut you. The guy said, Lie, lie. <laughs> when he caught him, blood came up. <laughs> 
What's the difference? A man had understanding of who he is. So all the, if you come to me, you will not cut. Well, those who believe you and come under your authority, they will. But see, take my gear down. My gear be a gear. Ah, yeah, 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 yeah. That's why you should never be afraid. I told you last Sunday, you can't be afraid of generational causes. Why? You shouldn't be. Now, and you're not part of those who are just bragging. They don't know anything. They'll say, no, it can't affect us. Listen, it's not mouth. It's revelation. Revelation of what Christ has done. Revelation of who we are. We are the new creation. We are the new creation over whom Satan has no power. We are the crown jewel of God's work of art and creation. We are. We are. Let no man scare you with old wives' fables. <laughs> no matter what has happened to your family, you, you are an exception. A complete exception. If they are eating people and eating them, like you, you are a taboo for them. In fact, that was the access point that the Holy Ghost told me that I used to preach to the two ladies I met yesterday at the store. Because I was just there and I heard the lady say, eh, they were going to bury somebody and say, the earth, ah, earth is eating people. Earth is eating people. And the Lord said, go and meet them now. Save their life. And you know the first thing I asked the lady, I said, do you want to live long? Ah, you look at me and say, what kind of woman? I said, do you want to live long? Ah, she said, yes, yeah, so. Yes, yeah, so. I said, then stop talking like that. Because if you keep saying the earth is eating people, it's going to eat you. It's going to eat you. Say, yeah. I say, it's called the law of faith. 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 That law of faith is greater than any demonic power. That's why it's called the law. Anything that is called a law is universal. It means it will work for anybody who will work it. That's why if you don't believe in gravity today, there's no need to argue with you. Go up there, jump. You will know there's something called gravity. Before you land, you will know it. You and gravity will meet. <laughs> gravity will introduce and say, I am here, I'm here. Alas, welcome. Welcome home. It's just like the home will be another home. <laughs> and that's the same way faith is. Romans 3, 25. He said, he said, he said, by what law? He said, by the law of works? Nay! He said, but by the law of faith. That's how a man is justified. The law of faith. Faith is a law. Faith is a law. Faith is a law. That's why we good sports said, you see, any man, any man can be free from anything, no matter how fettered he may be. By the power and the law of faith, any man can be free from anything, no matter how fettered he may be. We good sports said that. No matter how fettered. Let all the chains of darkness be binding you. When faith comes to work, you will break free from it. It doesn't matter how many years you've been bound. When the faith of God is at work, it will set you free completely. I remember the brother who shared the testimony that he had vertigo. It was a simple prayer here on Wednesday. Simple prayer. All those things have gone now. Because the word says, and the prayer of faith shall save the sick. And the Lord shall raise him up. The Lord shall raise him up. Somebody who had been battling with epilepsy left everything left. 
no matter how fettered, no matter how fettered, no matter, no matter how fettered, no matter how fettered, no matter how fettered, when the faith of God is at work, boom, freedom comes. Because freedom doesn't come by negotiation, it comes by power, 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 power. It comes by power. I tell you, in a good place where healing takes place easily. Because when I read in my Bible in the Gospels, the ministry of the Lord Jesus, teaching always drags with itself the healing anointing. Everywhere. So healing is taking place now. (laughs) Healing is taking place now. Healings of bodies, healings of minds. Healings of bodies, healings of minds. Your mind is made whole. 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 Thank you, Lord. You know, there are some of you, as I'm speaking right now, it looks like there is a fog in your mind, in your head. Like a fog. You know, it feels like your head is not clear. Put your hand on your forehead, wherever you are. If you feel that way, put your hand on your forehead. I command that thing, leave them now. Leave them now. In the name of Jesus. Now lift your hands and begin to thank God. It's done. Begin to thank God now. Come on now. Everybody, thank God. Begin to thank God, everybody. Begin to thank God. That fog is gone. That fog is gone. That fog is gone now. That fog is gone. That fog is gone. It's gone forever. That fog is gone in the name of Jesus. Give him thanks for it. Give him thanks for it. Give him thanks for it. Oh, glory. Hallelujah. In Jesus' name. Put your hands on everyone. Listen to me. If you if you experience that fog in your mind, before I pray now, raise your hand. I just wanted to see how many people you know, receive that ministration. Raise your hand. Raise it high. Glory to God. If you're already feeling different now, now put your hands down. If you're already feeling different now, raise your two hands. Let me see you. You're already feeling different? Look at that. You're already feeling different? Glory to God. You're already feeling different? Hallelujah. Did you see this? Let's give the Lord a shout, somebody. Glory to God. Listen to me. The healing anointing was there already. Whenever there is the teaching anointing, the healing anointing is there, present. All we did was to yield to it. Because in Lystra, that's what happened. Paul was teaching Acts 14, 8, 9, and 10. And the guy was there, important from his mother's womb, who had never walked. The same man heard the words that Paul preached. You've been hearing me. Paul, fastening his eyes on him, perceiving the man had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand upright, just as I've said to you. Be healed. Now I said to you, Be made whole. And wholeness has come to you now. Before this service is over, every one of you that received that ministration, already you are feeling different. But before the service is over, you will feel completely whole. Some of you will feel light. The heaviness is lifting now as I'm talking. The heaviness is lifting now as I'm talking. Oh, somebody say hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. That was a good divine interruption. Did you see this? So, we are his altar. 
we're exalted. I just want us to make sure we're done with this series today so that next Sunday we start a new series. And in the month of July, we're teaching the subject, Good Success. Glory to God. Good success. Yeah. I'm sure you love it. I can, say, I can tell. Glory to God. So we've seen how Solomon himself knew that uh, the temple was not where God would stay. And we see Jesus telling us that uh, the man God is referring to in Isaiah 66 is the man which is the new creation man. Ephesians 3.17, Paul says that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints. Verse 18, did you see what is the length, the breadth, the depth, the height, and to know the love of God which passes knowledge? But our emphasis is 17. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. So Christ dwells in our hearts. Did you see that? In 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul is talking to the Corinthian church and by extension to us. And notice he says, what know ye not? Did you see? And I like to read it in the Amplified Classic. Glory to Jesus. Thank you, Lord. 1 Corinthians 3.16. Know you not that you are the temple of God and the spirit of God lives in you. Look, he said, do you not discern and understand that you, the whole church, are Corinth? So there is a sense in which all of us together, collectively, are God's temple. And then he says, our God's temple is sanctuary and that God's spirit has his permanent dwelling in you. To be at home in you, collectively as a church, and also how individually so it means collectively as a church as a local assembly did you see god dwells in us what does that mean he dwells in our gatherings he dwells in our togetherness our sense of identification as a local church god dwells in it did you see that then he also says of course god dwells in us individually never forget that fact is part of the powers of the local church. And so, you know, the Lord Jesus consecrated us and made us that temple of the Lord. In Exodus 29, 10 to 12, you see how Moses consecrated the tabernacle as well as Aaron and his sons under the old covenant. You see it in Exodus 29, 10 to 12. And thou shalt cause a bullock to be brought before the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron and his sons shall put their hands upon the head of the bullock. And thou shalt kill the bullock before the Lord by the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And thou shalt take of the blood of the bullock and put it upon the horns of the altar with thy finger and pour all the blood beside the bottom of the altar. In verse 44, and I will sanctify the tabernacle, that's the same Exodus 29, of the congregation. Notice that it will sanctify the tabernacle. That's the temple. And the altar. I will sanctify also both Aaron and his sons to minister to me in the priest's office. So, the tabernacle was sanctified. Did you see? Consecrated. Their priests were sanctified. Their altar was also sanctified. You also see from 19 to 22, so you can put that down and read it later. Make sure you read it. And you notice Jesus did the same. Hebrews 9, 11. But Christ being come and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle. Now, the use of the word greater and more perfect, they actually refers to the reality, the substance. Not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. So it says there is a real tabernacle as against the ones that were foreshadowing this reality in the Old Testament. So you can imagine that you are looking at something physically and God says that's not the reality. Can you imagine that? So, because that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. He said there is a tabernacle we can see physically with our eyes. But he says it's not the reality. So reality is not about what your eyes can see. 
That is your physical eyes. Reality is revelation. Did you see this? But you see that Jesus did not use the blood of goats to sanctify his own tabernacle. He used his own blood. Hebrews 9, 19 to 21, for when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of cows and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people saying, this is the blood of the testament which God had enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. Did you see that? The word sprinkled there is rantizo. In Hebrews 9, 23, it was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with this. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than this. Again, the word better, as used in Hebrews, means the substance is the Greek word kriton, the reality. So it's not saying good, better, best. No, it's the comparison between the shadow and the reality. And in Hebrews 10, 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled, Rantizo, from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, when you see the word body, there's nothing about this body. It's talking about our entire being. Because it was simply something that was foreshadowed in the Old Testament, now being made real. Exodus 29.4, Moses did the same for Aaron, the priest. And Aaron, Exodus 29.4, And Aaron and his sons thou shalt bring unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and shall wash them with water. But glory to God, we were not washed with water. That is natural water. So when you see pure water there, don't think of the one you buy at the store. He uses the word pure to show you this is the real one. But what kind of water? Titus 3, 5. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of water. No. The washing of soap, of the blood of goats and bulls. What washing? Regeneration and the renewing. That is the regeneration is the renewing of the Holy Ghost. So when we talk of being washed, don't be thinking about this. Is the work of the Spirit. The washing therefore is the regeneration. That is, it made us new. So the washing of the Spirit is not like you are just washing a cloth or taking a bath. No. The washing of the Spirit is regeneration. Is to make a new man. That if any man be in Christ is a new creature, it's the work of the Holy Ghost. It changed you entirely from the inside out. That is the washing. Because truly when a person takes a bath, they come out fresh. Like they come out new. So that was the closest symbolism to regeneration. That's why it was used in the Old Testament. The same thing, we, because if I, in the Old Testament, you read in Hebrews 6, there were things they called diverse washings. All were to foreshadow regeneration. That's why you see, there are certain things you can't act it. There's no way to dramatize it. There's no way. You can't act in regeneration. You can only just try to see what is closest to it. And the closest to it for man was wash. Because when you wash, the cloth looks new again. But the reality that is foreshadows is God made a new species of being. That has never existed before. Because when I wash this shirt, it is still this shirt. 
generation is not like that. A new shirt that I have never had before. That's your generation. That's why he says, put on the new man. Put off the old man. Salvation is not an improvement on who you were. Salvation is a new life. If any man be in Christ, is a new species of being that has never existed before. And that's why he says, the old things have passed away. So he says, be old. Because you've got to be old this one. You've never seen it before. Behold, all things have become new. Everything. I'm a new man. Someone said, but when I got born again, I didn't grow taller. It's not this man. This is not the man. He is the man on the inside. He's the spirit. Someone say, I'm a spirit. Say it again. Say, I'm a spirit. Hebrews 9, 12. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Hebrews 9, 24. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So that temple is the house of God, over which Christ is the high priest. It's amazing that the word temple, tabernacle, not only refers to a place of worship, actually, it actually refers to a home for deity. So truly when I said earlier on that God doesn't sleep outside and that God walks from home, that's the reality. He doesn't live anywhere else other than his temple. He is not only worshipped there, he lives there. Are you seeing this? So the word used for temple in some places is the word oikos. Don't think about the food now. You know, we've had oikos in this church, you know, where we gather together, we eat and all that. Now, there's going to be oikos in the UK. Is it next week or when? Yeah, for folks in the UK. If you want to join us, join us. I'm also hoping. <laughs> Praise God. And the word oikos actually means a home, a house, or a temple. Hebrews 10, 21. And having an high priest over the oikos of God, house of God. In 1 Peter 2, 5. You see the word there again. He also has living stones are built up a spiritual oikos. And holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. So it's amazing. The same word used for house, where we live, is the same word from where temple is also interpreted. Amazingly. Did you see that? Hebrews 3.6. But Christ has his son over his own oikos. Did you see? Or here. Whose house are we? If we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. So we are the temple to which God looks. That he has regard to. Solomon in his prayer, 1 Kings 8, 29 to 20, 28 to 29. He, he was praying when we were dedicating the temple. He said, yet have thou respect unto the prayer of thy servant and to his supplication, O Lord my God. To hearken unto the cry and to the prayer with thy servant prayer before thee today. Verse 29. That thine eyes may be open." toward this house night and day even toward the place of which thou hast said my name shall be there that thou mayest hearken unto the prayer which thy servant shall make toward this place so you notice that phrase to this man will I look Solomon was craving for it we built the tabernacle Lord look towards it amazingly in the new creation Jesus didn't have to pray that prayer to the father because having consecrated us God didn't need to be prayed to to do what was needful he moved into us. John 4, 21. What Jesus told the woman at the well. Jesus said unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh, when ye shall neither in this mountain nor at Jerusalem worship the Father. Why? 
because he says in verse 23, but the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. Did you see this? So we are his tabernacle. I said we are his tabernacle. One of the Greek words used for tabernacle is the Greek word skene, S-K-E-N-E. And it actually is interpreted to mean habitation and of course tabernacle. So you see, oikia also means temple, a home, and at the same time, skene, that Greek word means a tabernacle and a habitation. So our altar is our hearts today. We are the temple, our heart is the altar. And by your heart, I'm not talking about the organ that pumps blood. I'm talking about the reborn spirit. Thank you, Lord. And that's why in Ezekiel eleven nineteen, the Lord promised and said, and I will give them one heart and I will put a new spirit within you and I will take the stony heart out of their flesh and will give them a heart of flesh. Ezekiel 36, 26, a new heart also will I give you and a new spirit will I put within you and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. Do you see that? Tender, in other words. So what do we offer to the Lord? Number one, we offer our work. And you've been good students today because we've now come to the home run. I'm, I'm literally at the end of a message. Are you happy? Glory to God. Did you see? So what do we offer? Just take it down. Our work. Our work is a spiritual sacrifice. So we've seen they offered goats, bulls, and all that in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we don't do that. Don't come to church with a goat. Don't. Don't come with a ram. Don't do that. Don't bring incense to Radi. You know, some people do that. They're stuck. You see, we still do that, but not that way. Do you understand now? So, first in rank. All right, our work. Romans 12, 11. I don't know what you're thinking of. I watch him on time. And it's good. It's better than all those Netflix series you watch. Not slothful in business. And business there means your work, your activity. It's a father in spirit. And guess how he ends it? He says, serving the Lord. With your work, you're serving God. When you're unfaithful to your boss, you are not serving God well. You're not. And I'll show you that in detail. Colossians 4.1 or let's start from Colossians 3, 22 to 25. Servants, he said, obey in all things your masters. Now, that's old English language. In modern terms, we'll say employers and employees. That's what he's referring to here. So he says, employees, obey in all things your employers, according to the flesh. That is, he's talking to his, letting us know he's talking about natural things there. But notice how it has spiritual implications. Not with eye service, as men please us, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. And that word fearing God means to revere God, to have reverence for God. So it means you must be reverent at work. A believer should be reverent in his place of work. There must be that reverence for God. It is that reverence for God that will make you not be a man pleaser or somebody who renders eye service. Because eye service is hypocrisy. Now, it's not as if you're really passionate about the work, but when your boss is around, you pretend like, oh, you're the best employee here. The Bible says that's ungodly. 
It's ungodly. And it is irreverent for a believer to live like that. So it is actually an act of worship, sacrifice unto God for you to be a faithful employee at work. That you shouldn't be the one who comes late, but you lie when you sign that you came earlier. That's unfaithfulness. That's irreverent. Now, and this is the reason for it. You see, because you are not only to be reverent when we come together as a local church. Do you see? Because Paul had told us earlier in 1 Corinthians 3 that all of us collectively are the temple of God and individually. Therefore, anywhere I am, I must have this consciousness. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is in his holy temple. So when I go to work on Monday, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is in his holy temple. And that reverence should direct my conduct. Somebody's going to work with a better understanding tomorrow. And it doesn't stop there. And he said, and whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord. Do you see this? And not unto men. So don't just go to work and all you see is your boss. In other words, you should see God in your boss. See God in your employer, in your organization. He said, you are not just going to work to earn a salary. So when you are answerable to your boss, he says, do it as unto the Lord. In other words, understand and be conscious of the fact that this thing I'm doing here, the payment salary at the end of the month, God is watching it. So don't think God doesn't follow you to work. After all, he lives inside you. Do your work as unto the Lord. That's the reason why you will be blessed more than others. Joseph was a classic example. That's why when Miss Potiphar cast longing eyes on him and wanted to force him to have sexual immorality uh, with her, to do sexual immorality with her, the Bible says he, 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 he was conscious of God. He said, shall I do this and sin against God? That should be the mantra of every believer at work. Shall I steal this money and sin against God? Shall I tell a lie here and sin against God? Shall I cut corners here and sin against God? That should be your attitude as a believer. So if you've been doing the wrong stuff before, change now. Your amen is lost now. Yeah. When you go late to work, you are being irreverent. Ah. Walking from home. And for the most part, you are sleeping. That Zoom meeting. And you muted the thing. And you are snoring. <sighs> Say, are you still there? Say, I'm, I'm with you. And they didn't know that you minimize the Zoom window, but Netflix is the maximized thing on your screen. That's unfaithful. Tell your neighbor for me. Say it's unfaithful. Look, look, your neighbor did not hear you. Don't be afraid. I know some of you too, you are guilty. So don't worry. Just tell us, we are together. We are together. We are together in this. And, I see, and you see why Paul says we should be careful for this. He says, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance. He says, for ye serve the Lord Christ. You serve the Lord Christ. So your work is part of your spiritual sacrifice unto God. Let it be a good one. Ephesians 6, 5 to 9. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in singleness of, of your heart. So you don't, don't, don't cheat your boss. Whatever you signed and agreed to do when you were employed, make sure you give it your best shot. 
Don't deprive your employer of what you agreed to offer. Don't use your office time for other things. Not even to preach. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Yeah. You know, some Christians are very silly. He gets to work. He will use office time to do fellowship. Then wake up in the morning. Awa tokwe tosi amorawa. Awa tokwe tosi amorawa. Awa Whatever you are singing. And he will pray, 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 pray. One hour, 45 minutes of office time. When your boss now comes, what about the things you were supposed to uh, turn in this morning? Uh, you know, I have to first use the first hour of the day to worship the Lord because as goes the first, goes the rest. So you need to understand the law of first things. That's so, that's so wrong. You ought to have prayed before you left home. Everything has its place. Don't let the name of the Lord be mocked because you are an extreme Christian who doesn't know priorities. Because in being faithful to your boss, as you can see in the word of God now, you are actually still serving God. Ah, yeah. Is somebody getting this this morning? Somebody say, I hear, I hear, I hear. Glory to God. And so he continues to say, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. So he says, he's doing the will of God. When you are walking like that, you're doing the will of God. <laughs> You're doing the will of God. With good will doing service. You know, one of our generals in the church here has been such a good, 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 good member of his organization where he works to the point that his boss reached out to us and said they want to come to this church with the entire staff. And this is not a small organization to come for Thanksgiving in this church. And I'm going to welcome them to do it. If you are not a good employee, <laughs> they don't even want to know you're a Christian. Don't talk about your church. Yeah. And I know he has brought two people, at least that I that have been told, to this church who are now members of this church. Colleagues of his at work. Yeah. And now the entire organization wants to come and do Thanksgiving year, the anniversary. That's a great testimony, man. But if you are the one who goes late, they don't even want to know your church care. No. When you're good, they see that man, whatever you're hearing there, oh boy, it's good. Some good stuff. There's another brother in this church where if I, there's a lady here, see, you know, she came to this church because a, a dear brother, did you see, you know, Corey was walking in that place before, and the owner of the school, very big school around here, all right, called her and told her that since Corey started going to that his church we observed that his life changed and they told her you two go there she's here now stand up stand up let them celebrate you she's here. did you see this aren't you glad to be part of a great church yeah sit down God bless you we're not joking too. <laughs> And one of our leaders, Brother Uche, is the one I was talking about. His entire company is coming for Thanksgiving. Let them see you now. <laughs> and one of his names is Christian. He's a real Christian. <laughs> As Uche Christian Uoha. Did you see what I'm saying? So you've got to do well. 
and I'm being serious about this because listen to me, what is doing at work is truly a sacrifice unto God. Well pleasing unto him. So God can ride on it. Now, I'm not saying that all your bosses need to be coming here for Thanksgiving. That's what I'm talking about. Come on now. <laughs> so don't make this a yardstick and say, hey, when, when, Lord, Lord, God, when? When will they come from my walk? Exactly, you that you have cussed everybody out. You know, when they, when they offended, I said, oh, my shit, where they, where they, where they, where they mess you, you know, you know, what here, oh God. I be giving fizzy for any, I be, ah, you collect. <laughs> ah, believer. Believer. After you say you go collect, I do want to preach. He said, I won't make you collect salvation, collect life. <laughs> <laughs> let me tell you something this is the reason why you realize some things that our old folks used to say is not religion your conduct matters as a believer because if you are not careful your conduct will be the reason why you cannot preach the gospel it's true and that's a practical thing to do that you can you must understand as I say this your work is not your calling but it is a platform to express your calling. This is a very good example of it. Where your life in itself influences people and then you're preaching the message of Christ to them and then your colleagues at work can follow you to church. You can lead your colleagues to Christ. You know, you can live in a way that you as an employee can lead your boss to Christ. That you can disciple your boss at work. That when they get to certain points, they don't understand what to do. They will call you and say, listen, look, I know at work here I'm your boss, but look, on this matter, you are my teacher. See, what does the Bible say about this? Thing? Say, okay, so, sir, sit down, sir. Let's, let's open our Bibles to <laughs> Ephesians 6. <laughs> I know respectfully, you are teaching your boss. Yeah. And you can disciple your boss. You know, many years ago, in Raymond Chapel, in Loring, there's a man of God, he started his own ministry now here in Lagos. He was a lecturer. God born again, joined Rema Chapel. His student in Uni Loring was his Sunday school teacher. Then later, one of his students became his department head in church. So in school, he teaches the guy. In church, the guy teaches him. And when it's time to fast, you say, Sir, the man should look at school. <laughs> <laughs> Christianity is about. No matter where we find ourselves, God wants to use you. And so you must be conscious of the fact that you are his temple and carry it to work. Somebody say after me, I'm carrying it to work. Number two, our praises. Number three, our giving. And then number four, our labor in the gospel. So I've said our work, number two, our praises. Hebrews 13, 15, write it down. By him, therefore, let us offer sacrifice of praise. From the fruit of our lips, giving thanks unto his name. Every time we're singing unto the Lord, it's a sacrifice unto him. He calls this sacrifice of praise. That's why you don't want to joke with me when we're praising God in church. Join us. Sing. But let it come from your heart. If it doesn't come from your heart, you're not offering a sacrifice. Because that heart is the altar where everything must come from. Did you see that? 
then our giving, Hebrews 13, 16, our giving is a sacrifice, but to do good and to communicate, forget not. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. He calls our giving a sacrifice unto the Lord. In Galatians 6, 6, he let him that is taught in the word communicate, uses the same word. So the word communicate there means to give. So our giving is a sacrifice unto God. Philippians 4, write that down as well, 15 to 19. Paul speaks of what they sent to him. Did you see the Philippian church? And he said, I have received it, but it has risen to the Lord as a sacrifice. Did you see? Look at that. Now, you Philippians know, go to 17 or 16. 16, quickly, come on now. 16 and 17. For even if you say, once and again, 17, not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. 18, but I have all and abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell. A what? Acceptable unto who? So your giving is our sacrifice. It's a sacrifice. See, the moment you give offering is church, partnership offering, you know, your offerings and, you know, the moment you do that, like Jesus said, we read earlier on, the altar sanctifies the gift brought to the altar. When you give, you see to the Lord in your offerings, your partnership seed and all that, it is sanctified. From that point, it's no longer your money. It's no longer your money. So if you come back tomorrow and say, I want to collect the offering I gave yesterday, we don't have it. It's not your money. It's not your money. That's why it's in our constitution. For real, all giving is non-refundable. I made sure they put it there when I started this church. You say, why did you do that? Because I heard the story of a woman in, 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 in Akure. I'm not joking. A real life story. An old woman. They said she got offended. She had an altercation with a pastor that has pastored her for over 35 years. And so she said she's leaving the church. And they thought that was the end of it. They didn't know they had not heard the end of the story. The last of that story. The woman came back and said they should give her all her offerings. I'm telling you real life story. She requested all her. And you know those studies, they used to, they have tight card and everything. She brought it. She said, I have my record. Check it against your own. Do my calculation. I want all my money back. They gave her money. You want your old woman to die in your, on your neck. So when I heard that story, and thankfully I heard it before I started this church. So when I started this, I was going to do registration. I told the lawyer, I said, Barista Wally, write it there. All offerings. I said, is it permissible by law? He said, very well. I said, so look for where it is in the constitution. They found it. So yeah, so put it there. All offerings, all givings are voluntarily given and therefore non-refundable. <laughs> if you want me to show you, I can bring it next Sunday. <laughs> you know, let's one day you not come and you say, sir, I want all our money back. Ah, we don't have it. <laughs> I will show you from scripture. Then when you say, hey, I'm not doing scripture, let's face reality. I will bring the reality to you and show you. It's in the constitution. <laughs> Toya doesn't know about that part of law yet. Doesn't know. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> you know what? In the reality, and that's why you must know it. You give in the church. Because people ask sometimes, when we say we are giving to the Lord, but I gave it in church. You know? I gave it in church. So how does it get to God? Paul just told you that. He said, I received the gift. But it ascended to God as a sacrifice. Because God is seen in men. So the things of God are ministered by men. And they are also received by men. For me to give something to God, I have to give it to a man designated by God. If it is offerings, do you see partnership? That goes to men that God has chosen. Churches God set up. If it is almsgiving and kindness 
I give it to fellow men in that capacity. That is God. That's why he said, when I was sick, you visited me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you visited me. When I was hungry, you fed me. And then he said, they will say to him, when were you hungry? He said, as long as you did it to any of this, you've done it to me. So he's saying to you, man is my collection center. But you must understand the different categories of that. Arms giving is to any man. There's what is called prophet suffering. It's to men of God. Let he that is taught in the word communicate to him that teacheth in every good thing. Understand the different categories of giving in your life. When you honor your parents, it's still God you're honoring. It's another category of giving. So you must see God in your parents. When you honor them with your substance, that's God receiving it. It ascends to God. Do you see as a pleasing sacrifice? Do you see how in Acts 10, Cornelius was giving alms, an angel showed up. He said, your alms giving has risen to God. Your alms giving. God never physically came to collect something from Cornelius. But as long as he did it to help the poor, the Bible says God reckoned with it. Then, Acts 10. You have it. You have it. And when he looked on him, he was afraid and said, what is it, Lord? And he said unto him, thy prayers and thine alms are common for a what? A memorial before God. Finally, our labor in the gospel. Philippians 2.17. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. Second Timothy 4.6. For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand, Paul said. So notice, when he was going to wrap up his ministry, he, he referred to himself as an offering to be offered. Because our labor in the gospel is also a sacrifice unto God. Our prayer, of course, is a sacrifice unto God. Thank him, thank him. We thank you, Lord Jesus. Oh, I wish you would lift up your voice. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. You know, Paul said in Romans 12, 1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, that you present yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto the Lord. We must offer our lives to him. Not only in church, but everywhere. At all times, God owns us. Somebody say, I'm owned by Him. Say it again, say, I'm owned by Him. I am His and He lives in me. Say it again, say, I am owned by Him. I am His and He lives in me. Say it again, say, I am owned by Him. I am His and He lives in me. Say it again and again to yourself. Meditate on that right now, everybody. I'm owned by him. God bless you, family. Have a wonderful week in Jesus' name. This message was brought to you from the Heritage of Faith Church. Our vision is raising stronger believers. For more impactful resources, visit our website at www.hofng.org. God bless you.